operating at an extraordinary level can seem challenging. Learn how to survive in the lone wolf economy in the OG Money Podcast with Lonnie gordon Agolnik. Drawing on over 20 years of experience in the trenches of Wall Street, Lonnie explores what it takes to be successful in today's rapidly changing environment. From daily routines, wealth strategies, and sustaining the highest levels of wisdom, Lonnie and his guests unpack proven ways to live an extraordinary life. Welcome to the OG Money Podcast. I've got a real OG from Ontario, Canada, Greg Foss. Greg is a uh, high-yield bond trader in a previous life. Now he's moved on to other things in the world of Bitcoin. We're going to dig a little bit into this OG's life and how it evolved and where we got to today. But uh, I do believe... Greg, that you were the first high-yield bond trader in Canada. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So before we get to that phase, I like to get into the childhood phase a little bit. Like, what were you doing at 14, 15, 16 years old? What were some of those sparks that, like, you, you, you knew there was something going on? For me, at 13, I was trading baseball cards at baseball card shows with adults, now I'm a financial advisor. What were some of those sparks early in your life that brought you, you know, into the world of finance and uh, where you are today? Wow, it's a great question. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. That's a pleasure. I'm a Canadian. I grew up worshiping sports. I think uh, as many young kids do, hockey uh, was okay in my in my sporting life, but one that I really took a uh, loving to was uh, football, North American football. So uh, Canadian football, different, a little bit different than uh, NFL football, but played up here, not nearly as seriously as down in, uh, down in the USA, but nonetheless, uh, I was focused on football, football in the fall and in the spring rugby. My goal was to continue my schooling focused only on the sports. So I ended up going, I was, I was okay in math and I ended up going in Canada, you have to make a choice at uh, in grade 11. So around the age of 15 and 16, you have to make a choice whether you're going to go into business or something called pure and applied sciences. You can always switch from business back to, excuse me, from pure and applied to business, but you can never go backwards. So I wasn't really certain if I wanted to explore a business career, but I, I decided I'll stay with physics and, uh, and sciences. And I went to a school, a SAGEP, that uh, that's call it a junior college equivalent of the U.S. that was quite focused on football. In fact, a number of the kids would go down and, and get university scholarships in, in the U.S. at some big schools anyway, Division I schools. But that never happened to me. I ended up staying in, uh, in Canada, and I continued my football desires. I went and I walked on at the university, McGill University, which is a pretty good uh, engineering school. And I remember taking engineering at McGill the first year and I uh, said, wow, I don't want to be an engineer. I don't, I don't know what I want to be, but I just don't want to be an engineer. But I, I, I was still okay at mathematics. And I said, okay, well, I'm here to, to, to participate and try and play football. I did for four years. But the whole time, generally, my university career was focused around football as much as, uh, as, as engineering. At the end of the fourth year, that's when I had to make a decision. So I, I won't jump ahead if you have any more questions at that point. But between the ages of 16, let's say 17 and uh, 21, pretty focused on sports driving my school career rather than the reverse. 
So that engineering career, right? Like you have to have a pretty wild brain, right? To, to be an engineer. Michael Saylor is an engineer. Correct. And that's why I relate to Mr. Saylor so, uh, so well. So the interesting thing before we go too far ahead is Michael Saylor's brain is you know, off the charts, but he's also an amazing salesman. What he's doing out there is an evangelical for this uh, space uh, in the Bitcoin world, I think is um, second to none. But wh- where did you like, what did you like about the engineering and how has that helped you today and through your career as a high yield bond trader? Where did those worlds Excellent converge? question. Yeah. So engineers, engineers, as you can imagine, are pretty good on their, uh, on their feet when you have to think quickly and mathematically. Bond trading is very mathematically, uh, well, bonds trade for price. Everyone, and we won't go too in-depth, but everyone thinks of bond trades on a yield basis. Maybe a, a yield is quoted, but it ultimately results in a price because a trade always takes place as a price. And bonds trade in eighths and quarters and halves and points and a half. You have to be really quick on your feet uh, mathematically. So certainly the mathematics helped me. The But engineering as a whole, and this is where I, I really relate to Michael Saylor, I understand first laws of thermodynamics, conservation of energy. We'll get into this, but I do believe di- Bitcoin is digital energy. That's the exciting part. So I did take all sorts of crazy courses, including turbo machinery courses, I was no A student. I was decent, but uh, I wasn't a walking mainframe like a lot of uh, a lot of uh, engineers are. And that's what's beautiful about Michael Saylor. He's he's brilliant, but he can also he's eloquent as well. Whereas many engineers, you know, they're just so smart. They just they're good at at, at engineering, but they're just not really good at a, a lot of other things in life. Yeah, I I, I find that uh, as a financial advisor, like the engineers are the hardest clients to deal with. It takes them, you know two weeks to get, you know, a decision whether they want to trade or not, because right. they're going through every aspect of the, uh, of the idea. Let's get into the nuts and bolts real quick here now. So you end up at, is it the Royal Bank of Canada? You're working there as at your first job? So, well, yeah. So, and then really quickly, just before I graduated from uh, McGill and I knew I didn't want to be an engineer and I didn't really know what I wanted to be. So it just so happens I was a, a brother in a fraternity. And in my final semester, a guy was writing a GMAT. And I'm like, what the heck is this thing called a GMAT? He says, well, it's if you want to do an MBA. And I'm like, okay. Long story short, I wrote the GMAT at short notice. had a very decent score. And I uh, was lucky enough to be accepted at uh, Cornell University in upstate New York, an Ivy League school. As you guys know, very proud to go there. I had zero work experience, and I would not have been accepted if I had been a U.S. citizen. There's no question about it. But they were trying to build their international business program. I came from Canada, uh, came from a decent school with pretty good marks, got in, changed my life. So I became, uh, I went through two years of MBA at a a quality school in the U.S. and met some unbelievable people. As an aside, uh, one of my roommates, uh, unfortunately, was killed in 9-11. So, uh, you know, I've lived I, I, I live the, uh, a little bit of the American experience. I understand the difference between the two countries, but I wanted to come back to Canada. I wanted to try and find my trade in the Canadian markets rather than go to Wall Street. You end up right at the Royal Bank of Canada. So here you are on Wall Street and you're the right-hand man to what, the CFO of the bank and there's some problems going on there? It's right hand man. I've worked in a group. Certainly, okay. the group was the right hand. 
the people. My boss was a Harvard MBA, another Canadian that had gone down to school in the U.S. and came back. He, he was directly the right-hand man of the CFO. I worked in a group under the Harvard, uh, Harvard MBA. And yeah, we, we took on certain projects, very specific projects that were high intensity, but also uh, very strategic in, in importance for the bank. So your first mind-blowing experience at the bank, something was going on where you, your bank had a lot of exposure to uh, foreign sovereign debt uh, that was going to make the bank, what, insolvent? Uh, That's correct, yeah. Run us through that experience real quickly, because that was, what, 1988? 1988, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a kid, and, and you're seeing what's going on, and run, run us through that scenario because I think it's very prevalent to today. And, it is. uh, yeah. So let's go, let's go to that scenario and what you're seeing and what happens. Okay. Excellent question, Lonnie. So one of my projects, one of my first projects when I got there was, um, in 1988, treasury secretary, Nicholas Brady, United States treasury secretary had devised a plan to convert or swap money center bank exposure to Latin American uh, countries, specifically the first one was Mexico. When we say Royal Bank of Canada, Canada's largest financial institution had a meaningful exposure to Mexico, but it wasn't alone. So did all the U.S. money center banks, European major banks. They were all in the same position. They had made five-year loans to a number of Latin American and other lesser LDC, lesser developed countries. And there had been a somewhat of a currency crisis. The U.S. dollar had appreciated meaningfully against their other currencies. And a lot of these countries defaulted. So the first one that Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady approached to convert five-year loans into a 30-year obligation, those 30-year obligations were secured by zero-coupon U.S. Treasury bonds, the beauty of it was, from an accounting perspective, is the banks would not have to write down the value of their loans from the 100 cents on the dollar that they made the loans at to approximately the 25 cents on the dollar that the loans, although they weren't trading much, any trading prices were around 25 cents on the dollar. Sounds so very like- cool. The Royal Bank of Canada had about $4 billion worth of Latin American debt exposure a billion of it was to Mexico, but a $4 billion exposure. And if the average trading price, again, was around 25 cents on the dollar, quick mathematics would tell you if you had to write that, those loans down to market as if it was a trading portfolio, you'd have to write down $3 billion worth of debt, right? 75 cents, it's, it's trading at 25 cents, you have to write off 75 cents or 75% of a $4 billion exposure, that's $3 billion. And lo and behold, Royal Bank of Canada, book value of equity was less than $3 billion. Meaning, if you had written those loans to market and taken the losses, the book value of equity of Canada's largest financial institution would have been negative. And that Royal Bank wasn't alone. As I say, every single U.S. money center bank, mostly manufacturers Hanover, Citibank, for certain, all had the same uh, problems. Hence, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Nicholas Brady's very smart restructuring of this that allowed the banks to skate themselves back on side from a five-year loan, swap it to a 30-year loan. And the prices of those loans recovered over time because of the collateral, which was U.S. 
Treasury zero coupon bonds, as well as the fact that they were able to cut their debt obligation substantially so that the interest was bearable. And those loans went from 25 cents on the dollar back to parity, and in fact, through parity at, at, at a point in its life because of how interest rates went and how oil prices went. But yeah, the eye-opening moment for me was, my God, here I am coming back to work in the finance, financial world. Canada's largest financial institution is, is insolvent. How, how is that possible? And the simple answer is because, uh, well, not how is it possible. How is it possible that Canadians have comfort in depositing money into banks if this could happen? And the answer simply is that, well, most Canadian banks, there's only six Canadian banks, whereas there's thousands of banks in the U.S., but the big money center banks in the U.S., same situation, they are too big to fail. The government has an implied backstop. Very simply, Canadians take comfort in that. I think U.S. citizens do as well. And why do they have that backstop or how would the government backstop it? And we know the answer. It's very simple. They would print fiat currency. Yeah, so that was my first experience with, hey, how does the system work? You need to find a solution. This makes no sense. Right. So, so not, 1988, yeah, that was my first, uh, hey, I need to find a solution. It sounds like the first extend and pretend it doesn't exist. That's a great way to put it. It's, uh, you know, the, the capitalist system is built on credit. Banks are 25 times levered in, uh, on average. 25 times levered means if you have $100 of loans, you really only have $4 of risk-absorbing capital, and the other $96 of $100 loans is either depositors' money or subordinate debt. So that, think about that. If you make a $100 loan, let's say you have a real estate loan outstanding right now, some commercial real estate loan, I'd say there's a pretty good chance that the value of that loan has lost more than 4% of its value. If that's the case... The bank on that particular loan is undercapitalized. Now, is it undercapitalized or insolvent, excuse me, across the whole institution? You hope not, but Lonnie, the truth is it happens on a fairly regular basis. So yes, extend and pretend in 1988 turned into, there's some of the hiccups in the, in the early 2000s, but then the big one to the great financial crisis, 100% insolvency across the industry. There's no debating that. And then I would argue that in 2019, without the Fed stepping in, the banking system was certainly in big trouble again. Yeah. What, what was the two net 2019? Because I know the 2020 in uh, the coronavirus. Well, so I, I called 2019, 2020. I'm sorry. It's, it's, what, what happened, though, in 2007, 2008, 2009, is we just removed, or not removed, we transferred financial leverage in the banking system onto the balance sheets of governments. Correct. So I would argue that as as we were heading into COVID was the uh, was the pin that pricked the balloon, but there were there were warning signs before that. There was the repo crisis before that. There were there was gurgling in the plumbing of the financial system. But yeah, let's let's keep it to 2020 was really the pin would have exposed the banking system to all its flaws again. I think the government does a good job of hiding the plumbing of the uh, system because nobody really understands the layman doesn't really understand someone like the layman you, doesn't yeah. but i promise you the guys in the you know, on the trading floors oh they understand it and they understand it well rick santelli okay cnbc reporter that you know he's one of the smartest men on tv he doesn't get his due but he understands it 
And, and but it exists like that. People don't really understand that the banking system is so levered. Who, who imagine if we were if we carried 25 times leverage as individuals? I mean, who, who would even touch us with a barge pool? Well, the banks can because they have this implied backstop. So the seven-year auction that just went off like last week, I heard was the worst auction since they reported it. That's correct. I mean, there were a lot of different ways of describing it. But the funny thing is, and this is what we need to, we need to, I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back. So when I started trading in, in, uh, in the 90s, uh, 1990s, interest rates were, had come down in the U.S. from about 18%, but they were still around 14%. And in that 30-year career from 1990 to 2020, interest rates, government interest rates, went from 14% down to close to zero. They bottomed out, 10-year rates bottomed out at about 60 basis points, 0.6 of a percent within the last year. And now they've ticked up, and the 10-year has gone from 60 basis points to call it 1.6 basis points. It's, 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 well, it's, increased by 100 basis points. But in context, my God, you know, it's come from 14%, bounced off of close to zero, and now is at 1.6%. Seems awfully low to me still, but you're right. The seven-year auction was a, a dog. Rick Santelli, Santelli, I didn't see his rating on it. He couldn't give it an F, but he sometimes gives it a D minus. He calls it a dog minus, right? And then he goes through the stats. You, you need to understand that even though... It, it, the, the auction itself wasn't so horrible. The bid to cover was still healthy, meaning there were two times as many buyers for the bonds that were for sale than the number of bonds. So that's called a bid to cover ratio. That was still, you know, it wasn't disastrous, still over two. Uh, what really happened, though, was the price ticked up from, you know, they were hoping to clear it. Uh, I don't even remember what the rate was, but uh, let's just say for argument's sake, it was 1% and it ended up clearing at like one percent Oh seven percent that seven basis points made it sound like the world ended, but it didn't. It just, it was a huge hiccup because people said, Hey, I haven't seen this happen before. My life has been spent where bond auctions go off without a hitch, but you're right. Barron's did describe it as one of the, the worst since they've been keeping records. So I started in this business in 1998 and I was a young buck and I had no clue. All I knew was I was pitching stocks and they were going up and they were going up and they were going up. And like, you know, I was a, a young 25 year old kid thinking this is the greatest job on earth. And then 2002 hits and we get destroyed. I lose my business. I realize real quickly. I need to change the way I do my business. I do it the right way, modern portfolio theory, grow assets, everything's good, we're dollar cost averaging. And then the 07, 08 crisis hits and even in modern portfolio theory, clients are losing 40, 50%. I'm like, oh my God, yes. I could have done this on my own. Lehman goes to zero, Bear Stern yeah. from 300 to one, you know, Citibank to one. I, I just can't believe what's happening. And then the federal government comes in and they take on all the debt. And then we start seeing things like Greece bond yields just exploding, right? Like Attaboy, yeah. All over the place, we're looking at this like, oh my God, oh my God, where is the Greek bond rate today? And how the hell did it get to like 1% on a 10-year in Greece from 19%? Like, how does that even happen? Very simply. Well, I think you know the answer, right? But I'll yeah, I know the answer, the, but, but yeah, the average layman doesn't know the answer. So very simply, Mario Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes. Mario Draghi at the time was the European Central Bank president. And he basically said, 
we're going to do whatever it takes. And all the middle European countries that were in trouble, like they called them the pigs, P stood for Portugal, I stood for Italy, G stood for Greece, and S stood for Spain. Those middle European or southern European countries were rescued by the European Central Bank and de facto by Germany. They went in and they purchased the bonds and thereby lowered their borrowing rate down to a point where Greece is, as you mentioned, very reasonable, but not truly reflective of the of the real risk of lending money to that country. So that so what you're saying is the government just has free will to print the money, to buy the bonds, to suppress the yields. It's nothing short of anyone else that would do that, it would, they'd be in jail, right? But the governments are able to do that. They have that power to print money and suppress bond yields. Am I correct? Yes, you are. So how do we get to a point where the entire bond market for Germany is in the negatives? How, who would invest in that and why? Gosh, I, I, if you had told me when I was studying finance in university that that would be possible, I'd say you're out of your mind. But it's possible when there's, there's a number of things that happen. There are the potential for people will buy bonds if they think they have a chance of selling them at a higher price in the future. That's how rates go negative or yields go negative is because they buy them, let's say, at a, at a yield of minus 50 basis points. And hopefully they people say, well, someone else will come in and buy them from me at a an even lower yield. A lower yield would mean a higher price. It's a bit of a greater fool theory. Like who who uh, who would invest on those uh, on that principle? But people do, uh, and they've driven rates negative in the European uh, countries. It's never hit negative in any of the North American countries, but it's even takes it even further. It's not just the government debt. There were there were cases of high yield corporate borrowers in Europe that were able to borrow money from clients and actually give the client less money back. Right. So I borrow one hundred dollars from you and I keep that money for five years and I ended up giving you ninety eight dollars back. It, it, it's like they're they're giving you money. It's it's explain the mathematics to me on that basis. And I it, it blows my mind. But anything's possible when you get an elephant in the room like a European central bank or like a Fed that has the ability, as you pointed out, to manufacture purchasing power. So I've, I've been in this business for quite a long time, and um, I uh, attempted a trade several years ago, and it never worked out, which was sh- two times short the, S- uh, the, the Treasury bond, right? Shorting the Treasury bond has been a f- fool's errand forever, right? Trying to beat the Fed at their own game. It has not worked. It seems to me like today, just even getting to 1.6, that it's starting to work. But you know at the end of the day that the U.S. government will not tolerate that for much longer. Okay, that's, that's you know, they cannot tolerate it. But let's, let's, there's two things that you said. Though. So first of all, when you short a bond and you use leverage or use one of these retail products, you need to be careful. Those retail products... Uh, they bleed you to death. Oh yeah, no, they're, they're, time decay. They're short-term instruments. I get that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so the, but let's just look at the dynamics of shorting a bond itself without using a, an instrument that uh, that bleeds away. That uh, the time value bleeds away. If you short a treasury bond, you need to borrow it and then sell it, or you sell it first and then you try and uh, cover it at a lower price. Uh, that's how you make your profit. Well, bond math is pretty simple. Well, it's simple to me. Bonds are priced 
on two measures, one called duration and one called convexity. And let's ignore convexity right now, but very simply, convexity is like acceleration, uh, distance calculation. So distance equals, if you remember your physics, distance equals one equals velocity times time plus one half acceleration times time squared. Well, in pricing a bond, it equals duration times the change in interest rate plus one half convexity times the change in interest rate squared. So let's ignore the acceleration of the convexity component of it and just look at duration. Duration for a 10-year bond right now is about an eight. It's a mathematical calculation, but it's an eight, okay? An eight times the change in the interest rate will give you your price change in a bond. So let's say you short the U.S. Treasury bond at 1% yield, a 10-year U.S. Treasury bond at 1% yield, and that yield goes to 1.5%, meaning it widened by 50 basis points, okay? That 50 basis points times a duration of eight, okay, gives you a price change of four. So the price change will change by 4%. If you're short it, you've made four bucks, okay? It's more exciting when you do it in a 30-year bond because the 30-year bond has a, about a 22 duration right now. A 22 duration, and let's make it even more exciting. Let's say, and this is what has happened, the long-term treasury yield, the 30-year treasury bond in the U.S. has gone from one and a quarter percent to two and a quarter percent. It's widened by 100 basis points. So let's do some quick math. The duration of a 30-year bond is 22. 22 times 100 basis points is 22 points. The long bond in the U.S. has lost 22 percent of its face value in the last year. Now, if you're in bonds, that's one heck of a hickey, right? The, the, the benchmark U.S. Treasury 30-year right now is a one and a quarter percent coupon of matures in the year 2050, 2050. Well, that bond, if you look at a Bloomberg right now, that bond will be trading for less than 75 cents on the dollar. It was issued at $100 less than a year ago and you've lost 25% of your money. Now, bonds aren't supposed to lose 25% of your money, right, Lonnie? I mean, this just, just this doesn't happen, except when interest rates go up. And that's exactly what's happening. And that's how you make money by shorting a bond. If you sold it at par, and one year later, you've made 25% less any borrowing costs, that's how you make money in bonds by being short. Yeah, the TLT is yeah. down about 22% a year, right? That's the, I'm sorry? The TLT, which is the... Um, so there you go. Yeah, that's a 20-year. That's a 20-year. Who's it based off? I don't remember, but the 20-year long bond uh, index, right? So yep. yeah, that, there's a good uh, example right there. Without government intervention, most likely that's going to even get worse, but... I, I would agree with you. But the government's going to... Yeah, the government's going to intervene because they can't allow it, right? Like, they, So they can intervene... And, and, and the U.S. Treasury or the U.S. Fed will be the most powerful central bank to intervene. But look at other central banks around the world that tried to intervene, but it didn't work. And I'm not saying this is going to happen with a G20 country, but you can't tell me that the chance of it happening is a 0% chance. It's got to be something greater than zero. But, excuse me, you look at Venezuela or Lebanon, all these countries to try the same thing until the bond market says enough. It's over. I'm not funding you. You can print more of your cash, but even when you pay me that cash, the cash becomes so worthless that I shovel it to the street corner. So you've seen pictures of Venezuela where fiat currency literally is in garbage bags on the corners of the streets. 
it may be a long way away for fiat issuing G20 nations, but it's actually, sometimes it happens in the bond markets really quickly. Which is frightening. Yeah, so it's a, there's a frightening dynamic going on in it. You know, I, I just think if you're if you have any common sense here, right? We can't go you off. You said earlier, you know, you started out as 18 percent yields. We're at zero. I often mm-hmm. say you can't go from zero to negative 18 percent. So what happens to the housing market? I personally believe the Fed cannot ever raise for another. They can't raise another quarter interest rate, like maybe forever. Like, I just don't believe that the United States Fed has the ability because look at Japan mm-hmm. when they tried to raise interest rates a qu- mm-hmm. by a quarter, the stock market dropped by 20 percent and they had to quickly yes, reverse. Yes, I don't sir. see a way out of this. And that takes us to Bitcoin as this thing is becoming the insurance policy. Very well said. For all of the sovereign risks that are out there. Correct. And gold is down 10 percent you know, in the last, what, six months? Correct. Gold is down over nine years. Go back to the GLD. It's down, you know, 10, 15%. It didn't do its job protecting us against inflation. What has gold done? And that's more or less because government intervention into the gold market is prevalent as well, just as much as in the bond market, right? Okay. Where, where do you see, and without like, scaring us too much here where do you see this playing out over the next five to ten years because i think we have wiggle room i don't believe that this is going to unravel within the next year but i do see that there are going to be some problems i still think this you know we watched eight years of operation twist uh, you know qe's one two and three there's more tools in the toolkit but at some point those steroids they stop working right eventually it doesn't work and then it and unwinds yeah i think we're, we're talking the same language i i, I don't know i know it's going to end because mathematically it's a certainty that it has to end that we have now we our total debt to gdp ratios globally as well as between Canada and the United States, are so lopsided to the fact that your debt burden is growing faster than the ability of your economy to keep pace. It's it's mathematical certainty that this debt spiral, D-E-B-T, not death spiral, but some people would say it's a death spiral, it will continue. It's it's simply mathematics. You, you can say it's not going to end in one year or it's, you know, what's going to happen. But the reality in a, in a bond market, sort of like in 2007 with Lehman Brothers, it, it contagion is a horrible thing and it happens really quickly. Risk happens fast. In 2006, as a, an example, Lehman Brothers, you could look at the stock price, but a much more telling indicator of Lehman's confidence in the global markets was something called a credit default swap rate. Now, credit default swap is basically insurance that you can purchase against the default of a counterparty or of a reference asset, rather. You purchase that insurance from a counterparty, normally a, a big Wall Street bank, but you can monitor the confidence that the market has in a borrowing party by looking at their CDS rates, okay? Their credit default swap. Let me stop you right there. Mm -hmm. Unless you have a Bloomberg terminal, how would the average Joe be able to track a CDS on, say, Brazil? They're actually pretty, you know, there's there's good web pages out there, 100%. Okay, good. Some of them you have to pay for. If you're looking at sovereign 
credit default swap rates, for example, those are available on some public. Bloomberg's a great tool, as everyone knows, in the fixed income markets. But my example of Lehman very quickly was in 2006, it, it, it traded at nine basis points, which meant that you could buy insurance on $10 million of Lehman Brothers debt and you only had to pay $9,000 a year. It was a five-year contract. You only had to pay $9,000 a year to insure $10 million of Lehman Brothers debt. Well, within three years, that $9,000 a year premium was worth $6 bucks. okay? That's how much the credit quality, and eventually it defaulted, as you know. Uh, but the problem then becomes, Lonnie, is who did you buy that insurance from? Well, let's say you bought it from Bear Stearns. Well, Bear Stearns had their own problems. And if it wasn't for JP Morgan bailing them out, Bear Stearns would have been bankrupt as well. So imagine if you bought protection on Lehman Brothers from Bear Stearns, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, my insurance company, essentially Bear Stearns, is also going bankrupt. So you need to run out and buy insurance on your insurance company. To yeah. protect your claim. And where are you going to AIG? They're bankrupt too. Okay, there you go. So if AIG, if AIG had gone down, Goldman would have gone down. So that's one reason they saved AIG, right? So it's just, it becomes contagion. It becomes circular. And this is what happens in the debt market. So you can say that it'll go for a lot longer. And I'll say, God darn it, I really hope it does. But then I'm not confident that it will because I've seen it unravel so quickly a number of times in my career. I agree. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't touch the bond market. But that, let me ask you this question. So what happens if you start to see bond markets uh, on sovereign countries default? How does that affect the municipal bond market, the corporate bond oh, market? Like, is it an automatic if 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 the sovereigns start going, do the corporates have to go? Like, does an yes, Amazon- because everything trades. It's all um, uh, it's a risk ladder. If you think of it as a risk ladder where your sovereigns are your base, and everything else is built on your base. Well, if your base is built in quicksand, then everything above it starts to wobble and shake and, 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 and come crumbling down as well. So yes, the sovereign debt markets, very good measure of risk in the world right now. We're seeing emerging markets, sovereign debt, CDS, credit default swaps, spreads on uh, emerging markets starting to widen. That should be a warning signal. It typically happens when the Fed uh, starts uh, raising rates. But I'll tell you, you know, everyone says, oh, the countries can't default. And I'll say, well, look, I experienced it in, in, in 1988. Last year, we saw Venezuela, Lebanon, Turkey's on the brink. It happens all the time. It just doesn't happen to G20 countries. That being said, there will be a first time for a G20 country to fail. The United States will probably be the last of the fiat currencies to fail. But ultimately, as Voltaire said, all fiat currencies fail. And it's a function of printing too much money and then the system losing confidence that that money has any meaningful value at all. So is that why you're seeing a rise in Bitcoin prices? Is that is that, is that could opinion? be like, I mean, there's just a ton of different reasons. One of the reasons is there's more people that are embracing it as the purest form of monetary energy ever created as Michael Saylor, Michael Saylor out there on a preaching uh, preaching his uh, gospel is certainly helping drive demand. I believe there's a correlation absolutely between riskiness in sovereign credits and and Bitcoin. I did write a paper on that subject and I was able to calculate which I thought uh, a logical calculation of the value of Bitcoin, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin as a function of the credit default swap rates of various countries. 
multiplied by those countries' funded and unfunded obligations. And I came up with a number between somewhere between 100,000, 110,000 US and 160,000 US as a fair value today for Bitcoin. Did, did people believe that? Well, at least it's a, a starting point. I can get to numbers way higher than that in the future. But the reality is it's what gave me comfort as a credit trader for my entire life that I look to the markets that have always indicated value and stresses to me. I said, yes, this is the logical way of putting an intrinsic valuation on Bitcoin. Again, it's over $100,000 and it's currently trading at about half that price. It's pretty simple to me. It's still the cheapest form of default protection on sovereign debt that I've ever seen. And you do not need a special agreement to trade that with any Wall Street bank. You can do it yourself. The little guy can buy default protection on sovereign credits by owning Bitcoin. So let's go there for a second, because in Canada, you guys seem to be ahead of the curve. I, I don't understand why, but yeah, I think you guys had a, a marijuana ETF before us. <laughs> you guys launched, I believe it was today or yesterday, the third ETF for Bitcoin. That is correct. I am still sitting here waiting for a U.S. ETF to get launched. My wow. sources are telling me New York Dig is the closest. Um, they recently got some money from, listen to these players. Oh, yeah. Morgan Stanley, Mass Mutual, New York Life, and George Soros Fund. Yes. $200 million to NY Dig. I got to believe they're helping in the process of getting that ETF. It's on. interesting you say that. You know, I haven't heard that it would be NYDIG that would. Uh, so, Ross Stevens, if, it, if your listeners, I'm sure your listeners do know who. Uh, uh, they won't know who Ross Stevens is, but I know who Ross Stevens is. So, unbelievably smart man, Goldman Sachs uh, uh, back, background. But uh, so, yes, that, that was an absolutely beautiful uh, group of investors funding their, their round two capital raise. I'll tell you what happened in Canada uh, from an ETF, and I'm not certain that NYDIG even has an application in the process, but they're doing some unbelievably cool stuff on the on the. They just end. they just set it up. They got it going. Oh, did they? they checked okay, every, so yeah, here's I spoke I to Breedlove about it, and Breedlove said oh. that every single check mark is there. They got Morgan okay. Stanley as their custodian. I mean, they've got okay. every everything is lined up. Well, I hope it happens because so let's look to Canada. Um, so I was a founding shareholder in the first exchange listed Bitcoin fund that was ever listed on a regulated exchange in North America. It was called QBTC, symbol again, QBTC. And it was a company called 3IQ based out of Montreal that I invested in. I was a founding shareholder because I believed in the benefit of having an exchange listed fund that was eligible for tax deferred accounts in Canada to enable them to invest in Bitcoin. Now, it was not easy. We we were not an ETF because the regulators did not believe that the ETF, uh, excuse me, that the markets, the Bitcoin markets, the underlying Bitcoin markets were liquid enough to support an ETF filing. We did it via a closed-end fund vehicle, but we won. It was thanks to a gentleman by the name of Sean Cumbie, a great Canadian, who went and actually took the OSC, the Ontario Securities Commission, to court and said, hey, you cannot stop us from issuing a product that we believe is in the best interest of the investing public. Now, as long as we meet all these regulatory uh, checkboxes, as, as Breedlove would say, custodian, sub-custodian, operational index, insurance, all these things, well, we won. 
very proud moment for the Canadians because that those closed end funds eventually paved the way for true a true ETF, a true exchange traded Bitcoin fund. And these have been blown up the doors off, Lenny. In one month, they've raised close to one billion dollars in in exchange traded Bitcoin uh, funds. Now, if you do the rule of one to, uh, to ten or ten to one, the U.S. generally versus Canada, that would imply a uh, a ten billion dollar raise in the U.S. in under thirty days. In comparison, the closed end fund that I was a founding partner in, QBTC, also raised about a billion dollars, but it took about a year to get to the billion dollar mark. So there's some really good metrics for the United States to look at in terms of adoption, in terms of liquidity. I really hope it happens. Yes, we did win that race in Canada. Typically, our regulators have been more open-minded to ETFs of all sorts, regardless. But it was a battle. It was very difficult to get them to embrace or not even embrace it, just to allow a Bitcoin fund. Winklevoss set up their first ETF application at $91, the Winklevoss brothers. Yes. I mean, it's pretty sad now it's 56000 that the average retail client missed out on that opportunity had they wanted to take some risk. On sure, yeah, yeah. Assets. You know what? Why would the, well, regulators, I, we, why would the regulators, like, what do you think has been stopping them? Like, what is the hesitation? In um, intellectual laziness on, on on behalf of some of them. Let's not be, uh, let's, let's call the spade a spade as well, right? You know, the banking system does not want Bitcoin to succeed because uh, Bitcoin will disintermediate the banking system. So there's lots of people on the regulatory committees that are, you could argue, conflicted. You know, their big, their big buddies are like, hey, don't, don't allow this to come. I mean, it'll, it'll cannibalize our own business. So there's conspiracy theories. There's intellectual laziness. There's con- uh, cognitive biases. You know, status quo bias, whatever. But it's not easy, and it was a battle. But now. The floodgates are open, and I believe it's in the best interest of all regulatory agencies globally to embrace a Bitcoin product because I think the public, the investing public, needs a way to hedge against the shenanigans that are taking place by central bankers. Yeah, so another mind boggling situation that popped on my radar today. Again, with the New York Dig, I mean, this, this company seems to be the forefront power broker now in Wall Street leading the charge, but. Ted Mathias, the chairman and CEO of New York Life, right? Okay. He's been appointed to the uh, NYDIG board of directors, and his knowledge and experience is going to help strengthen the wow, board. Wow, that's huge. It's, yeah, it's that's huge, huge because I believe he's also like the chairman of like the Insurers Association. Wow. So you had Mass Mutual put in $100 million as a starter investment into Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Correct. Now you've got this guy, Mathias, from New York Life. I mean, can you imagine the tsunami of money if the insurers? Oh, it's the, the, the math is just, it's crazy. That's why I say at these prices, Bitcoin's still a rounding error. I could walk through scenarios. I easily see scenarios that are approaching uh, Michael Saylor's uh, targets. The thing about Bitcoin that you need to understand is it, it is insurance and you actually need to own insurance your whole life. It's like you don't buy fire protection on your house, but then trade that protection and sell that protection uh, or fire insurance, rather. Uh, you don't sell that insurance. You keep fire insurance. Well, it's the same thing with uh, Bitcoin. You you buy it, you hold it, you own it because you're protecting against the downside scenario in the financial system. That it's just, you know, it's, it's pure, very scary. 
You do it for your kids because no one can ever be 100% certain of any outcome. So you do an expected value analysis and by all rational analyses that I have done, Bitcoin is the best asymmetric trade I've ever seen in my life. You need to own it. If you do not own it, you're taking far more risk than if you have an allocation in your portfolio. And I'm going to throw out a number. I'm comfortable with numbers far higher than 10%, but somewhere between 5 and 10%, in my opinion, is the, is the optimal allocation to Bitcoin in order to hedge and expected value outcomes. Yes. I, 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 as an advisor, I look forward to the day where we can open up our arms to our clients and Wall Street embraces it for the little guy as, as, yes. as something. So for now, we look to guys like Jack Dorsey, who's been spearheading the charge. He's building in Square, uh, Square Crypto. He's got yep. a bank license now. Yep. He put $170 million on his bank balance. I saw recently. that, yeah. He, interestingly enough, just followed a Plan B, $100 trillion, uh, on Twitter. Yes. He, he doesn't follow many people, and today uh, Jack Dorsey fo- started following him. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. As far as I Matt, saw his account, is it, it, did, I, may, I might have misunderstood, but I thought that Plan B's uh, Twitter account had been frozen or uh, removed for, uh, for a period of time. So I guess this is a, a, nice, uh, a nice flip side. Probably. I, I wasn't aware of that, but yeah, no. But Dor- Dorsey um, is, the, is the flag bearer, I think, carrying the torch, at least on the left flank of the political aisle, because okay. I think he's dialed in with people on the political aisle on the left. Okay. And when you see George Soros's name on the list of people that invested in that New York dig, yes. Soros also a big left-wing Fair enough. fundraiser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from the political standpoint, I think the nerves and fear of what the federal government's going to actually do, it seems like it's coming down the nerves of them really putting a stake in it. As far as that guy, Matthias, I, he's the chairman of the American Council of Life Insurers. Wow. So that's just like, holy shit, holy yeah. shit. If this guy starts preaching Bitcoin to those guys, you can imagine, not only do you have the Bitcoin, Goldman Sachs guys, you got the gold guys, you got the life insurance oh, yeah. guys. Yeah. So, Well, let's do some quick math, right? What do you think that, you know, right now, and this is interesting to me, the value of Bitcoin, let's just say, is right around $1 trillion. Uh, that is actually bigger than the entire Canadian banking system. Okay, the value, the market cap of the entire Canadian banking system. And it's close to the same value of the big four U.S. banks. So JP Morgan, it's JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citibank cumulatively have a market cap approaching the market cap right now of Bitcoin. These numbers are... Bitcoin will very quickly pass the value of gold. I think that's a uh, that's almost a slam dunk. Despite Peter Schiff's reservations, uh, that's going to happen. Uh, it's just a much better stored value, transferable. Well, let's talk about that for a second, uh, briefly. So gold as a store of value, yes. But moving money over time and space, no, right? Where did people... If Germany invaded France, the first place they went to the central bank to seize all their gold, right? Mm-hmm. How many lives would have been saved in World War II and Venezuela, Brazil, all these places if you were able to stick something in your pocket and get out of Dodge with all your assets? Oh, yeah. I mean, just this common sense of, of the store of value. When people say, well, 
Where's the store of value? It, the store of value is in saving your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You would have been killed if you were Jewish in Germany in 1939. Had you uh-huh. had Bitcoin in 1935, maybe you got out with all your money. But in 1939, yes, you didn't want to leave with your assets. That's correct. frozen, right? Yeah. All these different things. You know, Breedlove is very eloquent. I don't need to re, uh, rehash his, uh, his beauty of... Uh, uh, being able to state the transferability, portability, scalability, divisibility, all that stuff. But that is, it should subsume the value of, of, of Bitcoin very, excuse me, of, of, of uh, gold very quickly. 10 trillion, 10 trillion divided by 21 million. You guys have done the math. $450,000 of Bitcoin. That should be a slam dunk in my opinion. But then the numbers really get interesting when you look at the value of total global financial assets. That is where the value of Bitcoin can really, some of these numbers, the asymmetric return distributions of Bitcoin, that's why it is such an attractive trade, in my opinion. It, one very simple one, and I've had arguments with Robert Breedlove on this, they're, they're friendly arguments. Uh, he believes the total global financial assets are around $500 trillion. I'm higher. I think they're around $900 trillion. And that's because he nets out debt. And I'm a debt guy, and I don't want him to net out debt. Okay, I want to look at it like an enterprise value. So $900 trillion includes $400 trillion of debt. It includes real estate. It includes equities. It includes currencies, et cetera. If I use $900 trillion of global financial assets, including real estate, is it crazy to think that Bitcoin could get 5% of that? market, total addressable market. I don't think it is. So 5% of 900 trillion is 45 trillion. 45 trillion divided by 21 million is over $2 million of Bitcoin. So put a probability on that. And that's when you form your probability distribution and your, your expected value analysis. But the thing that Michael Saylor is so great at telling is that he describes Bitcoin as digital energy. And I agree. As an engineer, it just makes too much sense. That's exactly the best way to describe it. And Robert Stevens, the CEO of NYDIG, or he owns the Stone Stone Ridge. So he wrote in a shareholder letter, and I think that Robert might have had a, a, you know, a hand or two in, uh, in helping him compose that beautiful letter. He said the value of uh, money has always been a technology and the technology for transferring the value of time or work or energy expended today for consumption in the future. Okay, so that's a beautiful definition of what a store of value should be. And if you think of it as a conservation of energy principle, think of yourself being on a very hot summer roof in the summer on a hot summer roof, you're pounding uh, asphalt shingles into a roof and you made 20 bucks o- over a period of five hours. And that $20, you want to consume it in 30 years. That $20 is probably in 30 years worth like seven bucks at the most. And yet the value in, of the time and energy you put into that house actually improved the value of the house. So is it fair as someone who expended their valuable time, work and energy to hold their store of value in a depreciating and debasing fiat currency. Take it to the step of beautiful monetary energy and think of the fact that if you take that same principle and you think of countries that are selling their natural resources, their valuable natural resources for depreciating fiat currency, they'd have an incentive to hold or to to trade their valuable natural resources for Bitcoin rather than fiat. 
So I firmly believe that one day all energy will be priced in Bitcoin. It's just a natural evolution of the energy markets. And when that happens, when energy is priced in Bitcoin, the U.S. dollar will be removed as global reserve asset. Okay, Bitcoin will become the de facto global reserve asset. And notice I don't use the word currency. I use the word global reserve asset. It may become a currency if Lightning Network and everything uh, succeeds as we think it will. But the most important thing is, remember, you're holding U.S. Treasuries. If you're Russia and you're holding U.S. Treasuries in your reserve, you much you would much rather or much prefer to own Bitcoin, in my opinion. And when that happens, 5% of $900 trillion is way low. Well, I think Russia's already off the boat. They probably have already moved. Who knows? Yeah. And, you know, people, I, I frequently use the word, the, I use Saudi Arabia as an example, and then people bring up the political uh, concerns, meaning Saudi Arabia needs protection from the U.S., uh, so they would never take the U.S. off their, uh, you know, they'd always trade their oil for U.S. dollars and protection. Crazy things happen in the world really quickly. But I do think that Bitcoin, anything around the current trading level, is stupid cheap. My credit days would say you should be buying it with both hands. Do not overthink this. This is a hedge against all of the concerns with solvency of sovereign nations. And don't tell me that countries don't bank, don't, don't default. It happens all the time. It just doesn't happen with G20 nations until it happens. And as for my own beautiful country of Canada, we're probably the G7 nation that's most at risk. Of defaulting and if you actually looked at the credit default swap markets for canada sure enough it's leading the race for the most costly default protection right now the markets are always truth markets know things canada better pull up their socks we do not have a european central bank to rely on the fed is not going to bail us out and the bank of canada sold all their gold many years ago it's uh, not a great situation Right. And that brings me to my final point. We'll wrap up here because uh, you've been very generous with your time. I often get the, the blowback like you'll hear on CNBC where Janet Yellen says, well, it's very volatile and speculative or people will throw out, you know, that you talk to on the street. Oh, it's a speculative asset. And I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, like, OK, so I lived through the Nasdaq correcting 90 percent. It wasn't like you couldn't buy the NASDAQ in 2003, right? <laughs> you were allowed to buy the NASDAQ even though it was speculative and it dropped 90%. Yes. The bank sector dropped 90% in 2007, 2008. It wasn't like you were banned from buying the bank sector ever again, right? You, you were allowed to buy the bank sector. The bond market just dropped the long end, 20%, right? That's speculative. It's not yeah. supposed to drop. It's not like you're not allowed to uh -huh. buy the bond market. So this whole, like, it's speculative. I mean, oil went to zero. It's not like we're not allowed to buy oil, right? So, like, people, I think, have a misnomer as everything is speculative and everything has massive risks involved. So the argument that Bitcoin is somehow more speculative or risky than some other asset class, I, I just don't buy that argument. And hopefully we have uh, reached a period of time where the regulators, the banks, the SEC, FINRA, they come together and they understand that perhaps this is the Internet 2.0 and they don't look at it as something that's some devilish product that's going to overtake the U.S. dollar. And they look at it as the next stage in innovation, just like the Internet was 
for us in 1996 to 2000. And then people can actually hedge themselves and protect themselves from whatever may happen or may not happen in the future. On that note, it would be a positive enlightenment on the world and maybe a way off the system of just watching destruction in the bond markets. But only there's so much good that could happen. Yeah. So much good that could happen if you adopt a Bitcoin standard, no question, from a financial uh, perspective, not leverage on leverage. You can reduce leverage in the system. Leverage in the system was, is always one of the most dangerous factors in, in, in market unstable periods because leverage unwinds are inherently unstable. Selling begets selling. We've seen these leverage un- unwinds periodically over our career. Bitcoin standard, in my opinion, would reduce uh, those leverage unwinds uh, substantially. You know, hitting on a couple of points that you brought up, certainly volatility, you can call something a speculative asset. That's fair. That's a subjective or a pejorative. Let's call it a subjective opinion. As far as its volatility goes, Bill Miller said it best. He goes, volatility is the price of return. If you have something that's not volatile, it has zero volatility, chances are its return is very close to zero as well. Don't overthink this, you guys. Uh, it's funny. If I argue that you should have 5% of Bitcoin in your portfolio and then there's 95% of traditional assets, I promise you I know that you will be thinking about that 5% way more than you think of the other 95%. But it's just a matter of time before you get comfortable with this. And maybe it's not that Bitcoin is volatile. Maybe it's that the unit of account that Bitcoin is measured in is actually the volatile and programmed to debase well, concern. That takes me so, to a, that takes me to another point. So I'm an IAR. I can't buy Bitcoin for clients, right? Maybe if a, a registered investment advisor who has their own shop out there, they can do it. But Wall Street hasn't even entered the market yet, right? You're talking about a 1% to 5% allocation for the average retail client. We don't even have access to do that yet. So as far as price of Bitcoin goes, it hasn't even hit the retail advisor's ability to do that, which I think is coming with the ETF. There's the GBTC. There's no question. I'm not a big fan of the GBTC. GBTC is below where the high was back in 2017 and the price of uh, bitcoins doubled so i don't yeah, like that that's the product. premium or discount yeah, yeah it, I just it's don't... currently at a discount to its net asset value yeah. that's a, that's a problem with closed end funds and gbtc as you were going to point out it does not trade it trades on the pinks you know yeah, the pink right. sheets in in the u.s so Hopefully the government, hopefully, hopefully the government and and the regulators come through for us, and and we can do that for our. They're clients. gonna, they're gonna get plenty. It's it's in, it's inevitable, especially when they see that what's happened north of the border. Uh, look, there's a billion dollars of Canadian demand in less than 30 days. Yeah. Just imagine what the demand would be in the U.S. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. And I thought that this conversation was so necessary because you watch people walking around the street, and your clients, and your friends, and. Most people in the bond market uh, or what's happening in the sovereign debt, no one has a clue. They just hear, oh, we just passed a $1.9 trillion spending bill. Yeah. They don't even know we've already raised $10 trillion and only spent six of it. And there's probably another $5 trillion behind that for infrastructure and Green New Deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, people don't understand, like, yeah, it, it may sound good in the air term, but, like, there's repercussions to all of this. And um, oh, there's always costs and benefits, right? And the, I'm not, uh, I'm, I don't want anyone to go without food. And I'm a, 
if I was in the U.S., I know that I'd, I'd, I'd be fiscally, I'm a Republican, and socially, I'm a Democrat. I don't think there's anything wrong with certain programs that protect the uh, less fortunate. But at the end of the day, you need to do a cost-benefit analysis. You also need to understand that you cannot continually print money. This modern monetary theory and all these people that are getting the podium have never traded risk in their lives, and their math skills are absolutely atrocious. We need to actually start telling the truth, and that is key. Yeah, it's scary, uh, the reality of like thinking about some of the people that are running the policy in the government on both sides of the aisle. I'm not saying oh, yeah. Republican, oh, I'm yeah. not saying Democrat. You know, you yeah. had you know Donald Trump out there pounding to get rates to zero and spending a oh, million dollars just as much as the Democrats. So that, oh, yeah. it's a bipartisan effort, but like I think the chickens do come home to roost. It seems to me from what I'm watching that Bitcoin is starting to disconnect. We watched the Nasdaq just drop 10% in a matter of weeks while Bitcoin you know, continued to head higher where we're at like 56,000 today. We'll see how this all plays out, but I really appreciate the time that you oh, took. Oh, it's been to a pleasure. On. Yeah, you're a mind. And lower your time preference, everyone. Try not to look at the price of Bitcoin for days at a time. I know it's difficult. Lower your time preference. Let's talk in 20 years. Oh yeah, twenty years is gonna be it's gonna be a, a wildly different landscape in a world. With that said, I'm gonna do a follow up call with you probably in season two of the OG Money podcast because you're a brain that uh, sees things from the trenches of the high yield bond market. I really only like to people talk to people who've actually got the battle scars, lived it, and understand it. And you're an OG in that game. So mm -hmm. I appreciate the time. My pleasure. Um, we'll follow up. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you in this Twitter world. It's uh, 100%. Really and I, I appreciate the invite. And uh, maybe we'll uh, see each other at the Bitcoin conference in Miami if uh, the Canadian uh, if the Canadian border opens up. Hopefully everyone, uh, you know, reach out to me if you have any questions. Where can I'd everyone find you? On, where, where, where can they find you? Uh, my Twitter handle, I just discovered the beauty of Twitter, but my Twitter handle is at Foss, Greg Foss. So F-O-S-S-G-R-E-G-F-O-S-S. I I happily give you copies of that paper that I've written as to why every fixed income investor in the world should have exposure to Bitcoin as portfolio insurance. It's getting some pretty good reads on the various uh, circuits in, in, in both countries. I need to tell the truth. This is for my kids. I, I happily listen to people who have an opposing view because those are the views that you need to listen to most closely. You don't want to listen to someone who's confirming your own confirmation so bias, I, if you will. Yeah, before, you need to listen to people that, before I cut you, I'm going to cut you off before I yeah, end this conversation. Actually, what what's the thought process of a guy like Paul Krugman, right? Like speaking of different views, yeah, like he's completely anti and like where wh wh what is he thinking? Well, I don't know. Except all I know is for thirty two years I survived by not blowing up, and generally you survive by not blowing up when you realize you've made a mistake. You adjust your portfolio accordingly. Yeah, you don't dig yourself a bigger hole. You don't double down. You don't hedge and wedge. You adjust your portfolio as the information changes. Uh, some of these guys have never actually managed money in their lives. They right. just get a pedestal and people think that they have. Right. And they write for the New York times and they think that, yeah, yeah, I get it. All right. Yeah. All right, sir. I appreciate everything you've done. Let's, mm -hmm. uh, Let's hope that stay in uh, touch hundred percent. Yeah. And, and we're going to see, uh, you know, better days either way. Like you just said, we're going to adjust our sales as the winds blow. We'll talk soon. 
Thank you for listening to the OG Money Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. This site is published for residents of the United States and is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or product that may be referenced herein. Persons mentioned on this website may only offer services and transact business and or respond to inquiries in states or jurisdictions in which they have been properly registered or are exempt from registration. Not all products and services referenced on this site are available in every state, jurisdiction, or from every person listed. Third-party comments may not be representative of all customer experiences.